go ahead and transition our attention to God's Word. And uh, really, we could start by thinking about this text this morning this way, and thinking about that there's no denying that our culture is a dark one. It is a dark one. And it's an interesting thing to admit on the 4th of July, where we celebrate our nation's independence, our religious freedom, many things. And yet, we know that there has been, there's a darkness in our culture. Uh, The untold uh, millions of murders of babies that happens each and every year through abortion. The rebelling against gender, identity, and marriage, the things that God has ordained, our culture is in full revolt against those things. And really, the reason for that, that we see in our culture, another element of that darkness is the exaltation of individual feelings as the basis of truth which lead us into absurdities in our culture that we see uh, week in and week out. Absurd claims that we know to be wrong, and yet our culture is going headlong into them. And really, if you think about the idea of authority, we hold to the authority as our ground, as God's word. Not our feelings, not our emotions, not our opinions, but God's word. What has God said? But that is Another, as another example of the darkness of our culture, that is considered laughable. It is stupid in the eyes of our culture to hold to God's word. The Apostle Paul in Romans, you can turn over there if you wish, but Romans 1 describes, describes this kind of culture, the kind of culture that we're in. This culture of darkness. Romans 1, 24 says this, Therefore God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. For this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions, for their women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature, and the men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another, men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They are gossips, slanders, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless, though they know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. You could read down that list and you could think about where we see that, not only in our culture, but also in our own hearts. Really, if we're honest with ourselves, we know that the reason the culture is dark is because of individual sin. Individual and collective sin together is what, uh, even as described in Romans 1 and elsewhere in the scriptures, that that is why our culture is dark. It's dark because we are dark. We are dark in our souls, and then that collected uh, corruption progresses in society. And the darkness feels oppressive. 
and crushing. When you, when you sit, sometimes we, we go through life, we go through a day-to-day basis, and it's pretty easy. We, we have our job, we, we go to our work, we come home, we're able to eat and drink and all of these things, and yet, and so it's easy to ignore the darkness in a lot of ways. But when you stop and you think about how bad things really are in the world and in ourselves, that darkness feels oppressive and crushing. It does. It's easy to start spiraling into depression or discouragement. So how do you respond? How do you respond as a believer? How do you respond to that darkness? How do you respond to that? In a way, there's a similarity with Matthew's audience that he's writing to. You remember that Matthew's writing to a Jewish audience. Uh, uh, He's probably primarily writing to Jewish Christians, those who have accepted Jesus as Messiah. But, But in general, he's writing to Jews. He certainly wants to see more of them converted. But you think about those Jewish Christians in Palestine. They are living, they've accepted the Messiah, and yet their belief in what they see as God's Word, God's Word through the Son, God's Word through the Scriptures... Uh, they hold to that, and yet their fellow Jews, they're, they're not morally dark in the same sort of way that maybe uh, our culture is, but, but they are rejecting God's word, and the belief in the Messiah is considered laughable. There's that idea of darkness again, and so that question comes up for Matthew's original audience, as it does for us, how do you respond to that sort of culture? And really what we've been seeing Matthew do since the beginning, since the first chapter, is he's been displaying that darkness, that idea that, that uh, Israel and uh, the nations are in exile. They're away from God's presence. That's where the darkness comes from. And he's been displaying Jesus as that king, that promised one that would come and would deliver not only Israel but also the nations. He's been displaying uh, Jesus as the Son of God, uh, the the ultimate Son of God, the one who would rule on David's throne over all the nations of the earth. We just saw that in the, the, the baptism where the Father from heaven endorses Jesus and says, this is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. This is the one. There's, there's been Adam, there's been David, there's, been, there's all these sons of God, so to speak, who have this role to be a, steward, uh, king, uh, a stewardship king and priest, or people, in the case of Israel, who's called a kingly and priestly nation. But none of them is called the ultimate beloved son with whom I am well pleased, and that is Jesus. And then he displays it. We saw this last week. He displays. He has the right to this claim because he displayed his moral fiber, his metal, so to speak, in the temptation with Satan. You see, all other sons of God, whether it was Israel, whether it was Adam, whether it was David, didn't matter. They all melted under the pressure of temptation, but Jesus never melted. Jesus never melted, given the, the, the full uh, wiles that the devil had to throw at him. He never melted, which we saw last week, makes him our champion, the champion son of God who can lead us out. And now what we see in this section, we really start to see Jesus actually and take his uh, step onto the stage, so to speak, after John and begin his ministry, begin his ministry And what we see in 4.12 through 17, what Matthew wants us to take away and what we're going to see this morning is this, to repent because the Son of God has invaded to rescue from exilic darkness. Repent because the Son of God has invaded 
to rescue from exilic darkness. Let's see first in this text in verses 12 to 13 that Jesus repositions for invasion. Jesus repositions for invasion. Look at verse 12. Now, when he heard, this is Jesus, when he heard that John had been arrested, he withdrew into Galilee. And leaving Nazareth, he went and lived in Capernaum by the sea in the territory of Zebulun and Naphtali. Now, you remember uh, where John's baptism was going on. We think it, it was probably just north of the Dead Sea. So you remember uh, Israel, you've got in the north the Sea of Galilee, in the south the Dead Sea. Uh, you've got the Jordan connecting the two. Uh, and we think that John's baptism is happening r- just north of the Dead Sea uh, and just east of the Jordan, just east of the Jordan, and he's baptizing people. Remember why he was baptizing people? He's, he's baptizing them because uh, Israel is supposed to be the son of God. They're supposed to be this kingly and priestly people, and yet they've been apostate, walking apart from God. And John is calling them to repentance, to uh, see their need for cleansing, and to be God's people that he requires them to be. And then we saw Jesus displayed as that ultimate son, like we just mentioned, And it seems as if Jesus remains in that area for some time. That's what the text alludes to here. But then when John is arrested, when John is arrested, Jesus moves to the north. Now, it seems like John's probably arrested now somewhere near the Dead Sea. You see, Herod Antipas, the son of Herod the Great, whom we met earlier in uh, in Matthew chapter 2, had jurisdiction both in Galilee and in Perea, which is exactly the area, or at least a piece of the area, where John was baptizing. So Herod Antipas uh, has this jurisdiction there, and he arrests John. Now, we're not given the details of that arrest. We will uh, find out about them later in the book of Matthew, why that happened. But at least right now, Matthew is just drawing us to the attention that the reason, the reason Jesus moved up from the south from that region up to Galilee is because of John's arrest. If you think about it, John was the the forerunner of Jesus. He was the herald. He was the one that was saying that, uh, he was the one that was saying, there's one coming after me, and now the herald has run his course, and so Jesus makes his move. Jesus repositions for his invasion. Some think this idea of Jesus withdrawing is that he's uh, he's, he's aware of the danger, right? He's, a, he's been baptized in John. He's gaining notoriety. And so he switches to the north to escape. I don't think that's the case because he goes to the same, uh, to, to the, a jurisdiction that's under the same guy that arrests John. No, it's more about the idea that Jesus is making his move. Jesus is making his move. He moves to the north around the Sea of Galilee. His hometown was in Nazareth. We saw that earlier. Nazareth, if you had the historical boundaries of the tribes of Israel, would have been in Zebulun. And Capernaum, where he moves, he moves to Capernaum, uh, would be in Naphtali, uh, the historical boundaries of the tribe of Naphtali. And uh, what you have to know, remember, Nazareth is a very small town. We talked about that before. It's, it's, kinda, uh, it's, it's kind of a very small town in the hill country, whereas Capernaum is several uh, miles away, over 10 miles away, more like 25 probably, uh, just on the northern tip of the Sea of Galilee, the northern tip of the Sea of Galilee, and just a little bit to the west, a little bit to the west. So Jesus moves to this town. This town probably has 1,000 to 2,000 people, maybe more. We're not exactly sure. 
but it's a fishing town. It's a, it's a bustling uh, center. There's, there's international trade routes that go by this place. It's the most northern part, really, in, the pla- in Israel, in the land of Israel and Palestine. And there's all sorts of, not only Jews, but a mixture of nations that are going on there. And Jesus has done this intentionally to position himself for his invasion. Next, let's see, why does Jesus do this? We know what sparked this was the arrest of John, the arrest of his forerunner. We know that's why he's done this. He's taking up the baton from John, so to speak, in ministry. But why? And we see why in verses 14 through 16, where we find that Jesus invades against exilic darkness. Jesus invades against exilic darkness. Look at verse 14. So he leaves Nazareth and he lives in Capernaum so that, verse 14, what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. So now we get another one of Matthew's fulfillment quotations. Remember, we've seen a bunch of these. Uh, We've seen both prediction, like in the Emmanuel prediction that happened with the Jesus virgin conception and birth. Uh, We've seen others where uh, in his movements as a child, he's brought down to Egypt and then back out to fulfill a pattern. Remember that idea of fulfillment is actualization. Jesus is actualizing some prediction or prophecy. Notice here what's interesting, though. Jesus is the one who decides to move. And so when we see this purpose expressed in verse 14, really it's Jesus' purpose that's being expressed. Why did he move? Why did he move from Nazareth to Capernaum? Yes, John the Baptist's arrest sparked it, but what was Jesus' purpose in doing this? The so that expresses that, verse 14, so that what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. In other words, catch this, what Jesus is saying is there's something written in the prophet Isaiah about me, and I'm intentionally moving myself in such a way so as to fulfill what Isaiah said. In other words, Jesus is self-aware about what he is doing as the Messiah, and what uh, he, he links that back to what Isaiah spoke of. And now you should be ready for what we're going to do next, right? We're, we have an Old Testament quotation in the New. Uh, uh, Matthew is pulling on this. Matthew and really Jesus are pulling on this chain link. And he's shown us one link in that chain. And we're supposed to pull on that chain. We're supposed to go back to the Old Testament, understand Isaiah in this context to understand exactly what Matthew himself is communicating. So let's go ahead and turn over to Isaiah. Isaiah chapter Eight, and I uh, will start. What, what, what uh, Matthew's quoting here, he's quoting, uh, really, uh, he's quoting uh, Isaiah 9, 1 through 2, but there's a context. Uh, he quotes that link, but there's a greater context for Isaiah 9, 1 through 2, and Matthew uses the text contextually. He uses it contextually. He, uses it, he interprets it properly. Jesus is interpreting it properly, really. And if you think about the context of this, we've already examined the context of what's going on here because this is in the same basic context that Isaiah 7.14 was quoted from. You remember Isaiah 7.14, the virgin will conceive and give birth to a son. And we said that the reason that that prophecy of that virgin-born son was given is because Ahaz, a bad Davidic king, a very evil Davidic king, has put his trust in another nation, in Assyria, 
And really, what by his choices, he set the nation on, uh, on a trajectory that's going to lead not only to the, uh, the, the obscurity of the Davidic line, but also the exile and obscurity of Israel itself. And it's the exact same context that's happening here. Uh, we start and pick this up in verse 16. Bind up the testimony, Isaiah 8, 16. Bind up the testimony, seal the teaching among my disciples. I will wait for Yahweh, who is hiding his face from the house of Jacob, and I will hope in him. Behold, I and the children whom Yahweh has given me are signs and portents in Israel from Yahweh of hosts who dwells in Mount Zion. You remember that uh, God gave children to Isaiah. Their na name had a meaning in a particular way, and so he's referring to that. So Isaiah is speaking here. And when they say to you, inquire of the mediums and the necromancers who chirp and mutter, should not a people inquire of their God? Should they inquire of the dead on behalf of the living? To the teaching and to the testimony. If they will not speak according to this word, it is because they have no dawn. You see what was going on in Israel is Israel was hardened. Israel was blinded. It, it, it wasn't looking to God's word. It wasn't looking to God's law. It wasn't looking to his pronouncements. It was looking to other forms of revelation. They were doing the external forms of religion, all right, but they weren't looking to God's word. They were looking to other sources, and that's what Isaiah is referencing here. And really what you start to see is if they, the people who respond in that way, they don't look to God's word, but they look to their own devices or other sources, they have no dawn. We get a light darkness imagery, which is very prevalent in Isaiah. And he goes on, verse 21, they will pass through the land, greatly distressed and hungry. And when they are hungry, they will be enraged and will speak contemptuously against their king and their God and turn their faces upward. And they will look to the earth, but behold, distress and darkness, the gloom of anguish, and they will be thrust into thick darkness. Because you turn from God's word, because you turn from his law, you're doing the external forms, but you're not listening you are in the darkness, and you're going to enter the darkness of exile. That language there of hunger, of, of difficulty, it's the darkness of exile. The darkness of exile. And really, we think about the regions we've already seen, Naphtali and, Caper uh, and, and, um, Naphtali and Zebulun. Those are in the very north. Those were the first regions that felt the force of exile coming. Even before Assyria takes away all of Israel in 722, back in 732, 10 years prior, uh, there had been a deportation out of, out of Zebulun and out of Naphtali. These were the first regions that are being referenced here that felt the darkness of exile, that felt the darkness invading the land because of their turning away from God and from his word. But then there's a reversal, verse nine, or chapter 9, verse 1. There's a reversal. We've got this light darkness imagery, and we see in 9-1, but there will be no gloom for her who was in anguish. In the former time, he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun, the land of Naphtali, which we just talked about. But in the latter time, he has made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in the land of deep darkness, on them light has shone. Which is exactly what Matthew is quoting. Just turn over back to Matthew really quick just to see what you, um, we just saw and how he quotes from Isaiah. 
verse 15 in Matthew 4, the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, the way of the sea beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles, the people dwelling in darkness have seen a great light, and on those dwelling in the region and shadow of death, on them light has dawned. You see, Isaiah and Matthew and Jesus are picturing uh, this reversal of darkness and the invasion, really, of light coming to reverse the exile. Where did the exile come, came from? It came from Israel's sin, disobeying God's word. We could see that in Isaiah 8. And where did that exile of Israel continue up to Matthew's day through the same sort of sin? But there's a reversal. Now, if you just had those two verses, you would say, great, there's a light, it's coming. Why? Why is it coming? Well, this is where we come back to. Uh, Matthew is not just alluding to those two verses. He's thinking about the rest of the context. And so we keep reading in Isaiah 9 about this reversal of exilic darkness. You have multiplied the nation. You've increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest, as they are glad when they divide the spoil. So the nation, this reversal, there's joy now because the exile, the darkness, the gloom of uh, the, 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 na the nation has been reversed. But why? We get some reasons in verses 4 through 6. For the yoke of his burden and the staff for his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, you have broken as at the day of Midian. For every boot of the tramping warrior in battle tumult and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. Before, the forces of Assyria and other nations came from the north to invade Israel and to put it into darkness because of Israel's own sin, as punishment for their sin. But what we see here is the exact reversal. Light is coming, and he's going to bring you out of exile. The, the, the armies that oppressed you before are gone. They're destroyed. But you still are left with the question, why? Why are, uh, the, why, how did, where did they go? How did this happen? Verse 6 in Isaiah 9. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace there will be no and on the, the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore, the zeal of Yahweh of hosts, Yahweh of armies, will do this. The reason exile ends in Isaiah 9 is because the ultimate Davidic king comes. The ultimate Davidic king comes. Not someone like Ahaz that trusted in Assyria, but someone who, is, who will reign over the throne of David forever. You remember the Davidic covenant. We talked about that in that, our series, Kingdom Through Covenant, where the Davidic king is to rule not only over Israel, but over the nations. He's the one that's going to, exile, uh, to reverse exile. He's the one that's going to reverse darkness to light. And as we turn back to Matthew 4, remember... Jesus' purpose in moving to Zebulun and to Naphtali, from Nazareth in Zebulun to Naphtali at Capernaum, is to show and to proclaim by his movement that he is that king. He is the light. 
He is the one who is invading exilic darkness. But here's the key, what we see back in Isaiah 9, and even what we've, begun, what we've already seen in, in Matthew, is not only is this going to be a child, a deliverer, a, a man, a true man, a true and ultimate Davidic king, but he is God himself, wonderful counselor, mighty God, everlasting father, prince of peace. It is both God and man who is spoken of as the ultimate Davidic king in Isaiah 9, And Jesus is applying these verses and this context to himself. He is essentially claiming, I'm the child that was spoken of in Isaiah 9. I'm the one who has come. I'm the ultimate Davidic king, and I will reverse exilic darkness. And we already have seen that in Matthew, haven't we? We've already seen that idea We know from the virgin conception and virgin birth that this child was was produced by no human father, but through the agency of the Holy Spirit. We've already got hints at it there. We already have hints at it in Matthew 1, 21. You will call his name Jesus, for he, he will save his people from their sins. Remember the idea of Jesus, that name means Yahweh is salvation or Yahweh saves, but it's Jesus Who's going to save? Jesus is Yahweh. He is God. He is God in flesh. And what is he coming to do? He's coming to deal with what caused exilic darkness to begin with. He's coming to deal with sin. What we just said in Matthew 121, he's coming to deal with sin. In his baptism, when he's talking to John, Jesus says, I've come to fulfill, to actualize, to bring about all righteousness, to get rid of sin and to produce righteousness in his people as the righteous one. That is what will ultimately solve the issue of exile. That's what will ultimately solve the issue of exilic darkness. So we've seen Jesus repositioned for invasion in verses 12 through 13, Matthew 4. We've seen Jesus invade against exilic darkness in verses 14 through 16. But really, in verse 17, we see the means by which his invasion progresses. Jesus invades by preaching repentance. Jesus invades by preaching repentance. Look at verse 17, Matthew 4. From that time, from the time when he moves from Nazareth to Capernaum, And he makes his move, so to speak, taking up the baton from John. From that time, Jesus began to preach, saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Now, if you remember back to Matthew chapter 3, that is precisely the exact same message that John the Baptist preached. You remember that, don't you? Matthew, or excuse me, John was was calling, John the Baptist was calling for repentance because the kingdom of heaven was at hand. So let's review this phrase. What is, each word has significance here. It's very important. What's repentance? Repentance is not, is the idea of allegiance change. It's the, the idea of a total change in person. You see, each person in their own darkness and natural state lives for themselves. They live for uh, themselves, ultimately. They live for sin and self in opposition to God. (laughs) Repentance 
is the allegiance change from sin and self 180 degrees to now your allegiance is to God and to his way. And such an allegiance change can't but have uh, concrete effects in one's internal affections and desires and thinking and also external actions, which is why John the Baptist says, bear fruits in keeping with repentance. It's a comprehensive term, is repentance, turning from sin and self and allegiance from to, uh, of yourself to God. Why, though? And John and Jesus give the exact same reason. For the kingdom of heaven is at hand, has drawn near. What is the kingdom of heaven again? We've talked about this. Really, it's the idea of the kingdom from heaven or endorsed by heaven. You see, God's plan, we, we said this in the series Kingdom Through Covenant. We've been seeing it over and over again in Matthew it's the kingdom that God has always planned. He's always, he has a universal rule and dominion over all things, but he has always appointed a king over the earth to have rule and jurisdiction under him to execute his will and rule on the earth. The first son of God, the first king in that sense was Adam. And then there was David and the promise to David that his sons would take up this role. But here, the idea is, as we've seen, that Jesus is that ultimate one. So we're talking about, yes, a physical and spiritual kingdom under God's jurisdiction coming. And notice the language. It has drawn near. It is at hand. That doesn't mean it's arrived. That doesn't mean it's arrived. It means it's close. Uh, when we talked about this idea before, we talked about the idea, maybe you have a friend and he's telephoned you and uh, he, he's coming over soon, right? You don't know exactly when he's going to arrive, but he's coming over soon, right? The thing about that friend's perspective, you're, you're in your house waiting for the friend, but maybe the friend is right outside the door. He hasn't arrived yet, uh, but he's right there. He's imminent, right? He's imminent. That's the idea of the kingdom of heaven has drawn near. It's imminent. It's close. It's close. How is it close? Well, it's close. It was close for John, and it was close for Jesus for the same reason, because Jesus, the ultimate king of this kingdom, is near. He's there in his person. He hasn't established his kingdom yet, but he is right there and has the kingdom. He could establish the kingdom instantly if he wanted to. He could take charge instantly because the king is at hand. The kingdom of God has drawn near because the king has drawn near. And what John said and what Jesus says is the only proper response to that is repentance. Why? Why is repentance the only proper response to that? Because the idea of the kingdom of heaven was that God was coming to earth. God was coming to earth both to judge those who were opposed to him and to save those who had allegiance to him. God himself was going to show up. And now we see how that's possible. The Isaiah 9 son, the Isaiah 9 son, who is both God and man, has shown up. God has shown up in the person of the son, and therefore the kingdom of God, with its judgment and with its salvation, has come near. If, and if, for the one who does not repent, John the Baptist said in Matthew 3, what will happen? The axe is laid at the, fruit, at the root of the trees, and every tree that does not bear fruit, that is not truly repentant, will be cut down and thrown into the fires of judgment. But there's also salvation. 
Remember what John said, the one coming after me will baptize by the Holy Spirit. Those who are identified with this one in the waters of baptism, that's what John was all about, expressing that repentance, there will be salvation. Notice, this is Jesus' summary message. Notice what it says. He began to preach this. This is the summary message for all of Jesus' ministry. Sometimes we tend to think about Jesus as, uh, you know, he's just a nice guy, and he's all about love, and it's great. And that's true. Jesus is loving, right? That is absolutely true. But Jesus called people to repent and to turn from their sins because he, uh, he was going to bring judgment. And what has happened, he came the first time, he drew near, and he could have brought judgment, but he brought salvation for those who would entrust themselves to him. They brought salvation for those who would repent, and he's given a reprieve. But when he comes again, he will come in judgment to save those who are eagerly waiting for him, to establish his kingdom, and to judge those who have not repented. This is the one who is dealing with exilic darkness. We've seen Jesus repositions for invasion, verses 12 through 13. Jesus invades against exilic darkness, and Jesus invades by preaching repentance. This is the summary of what Jesus preached over his whole ministry. This is what Jesus was about. Repent, turn, change, change your allegiance, swear allegiance to the king because his kingdom has drawn near. Which brings us back to, what do we do with this? What what was Matthew's audience supposed to do with this? Well, first, the idea of repentance, it's not just, I've turned once and I'm good to go. It's the idea that you, you keep on and you stay on in repentance. You turn from sin and self to following and having your allegiance to God. Jesus, uh, Matthew is speaking to Jews who have made that allegiance change, and yet the culture, the dark culture around them, their friends are saying, you can't believe in the Messiah, that's laughable, right? What's the proper response? The proper response is to continue in repentance. It's not just one-time act, it's a continuing allegiance change for your whole life. And so as we see the same sort of darkness in our culture, in our own hearts, Jesus has invaded to deal with both our sin, both its punishment and power, and ultimately its presence. When we think about why is there so much darkness in our culture, why is there so much darkness in our hearts, we know it's because of sin, and we know that only Jesus can deal with that sin. He dealt with that sin in its punishment, in its, in its punishment on the cross. He, for his people, for the people who he's coming to rescue He stood in place. He bore the wrath of God in himself so they would not have to. And for the one who entrusts themselves to Jesus and continues that, there is a, a, a mortal blow done to the power of sin in the believer so that we don't have to keep giving in to sin. We don't have to keep giving in to the darkness that we fight in our own hearts. And ultimately, we know that when the king comes again, He will deal with the final vestiges of sin in our own hearts, and not only in our own individual hearts, but in in the world. He will purify the world. 
And so if you are in Jesus, if you have repented and entrusted yourself to Christ, the only one who can deal with exilic darkness, the own darkness of your soul, the, own, the darkness that's in the world, you have great cause to rejoice. Great cause to rejoice. That the one who invaded, who came 2,000 years ago, did come to deal with your sin. So if you're in Christ, you are seen through the lens of Christ. You are seen with that perfect righteousness. We saw last week how the Son of God perfectly obeyed the Father. And the Father for the, uh, sees through the lens of Christ, Christ's people. And he sees them as clean. He sees their sin dealt with because he dealt with it in Christ. He sees their righteousness because Christ had a perfect lived in flesh righteousness. And so you can rejoice that's part of what you should re, 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 uh, do with this message. Think back to Isaiah 9. Remember, it talked about the reversal of exile, and it talked about how great the joy was of the people. But we realize that Jesus hasn't come yet, and we do see darkness in our world. So how do we respond when we see that darkness? Patience. Patience. First, Patience. Patience as we see sin and darkness in the world, knowing that Christ will come again and will set up a just and a pure kingdom. He will finish the job because he came and started his invasion already. He will come and finish the job at his second coming. Patience. It's easy to get discouraged looking at how dark things are. Yes, they are. We don't slap uh, smiles on our faces and ignore the problem. We say, yes, there is. And there's problems still in my own heart. But we wait. We wait patiently. We keep our allegiance. We keep our repentance. We keep our allegiance to Jesus, and we wait patiently. And then we also do this. As we wait for that, we proclaim the same message as John and Jesus. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven has drawn near. We talk to people. We can use that language and say, repent, change your allegiance because the kingdom of heaven has drawn near. It came near 2,000 years ago. God himself and the God-man came in flesh and invaded. And he could have brought judgment then, but he didn't. Instead, he brought salvation for those who would entrust themselves to them. So repent. And the kingdom is imminent. We wait for Jesus to come again. He will finish the job. So you must repent. You must have business with God, with Christ himself, who will come to judge the living and the dead. And our message must be repentance. Repentance is not a a word that people enjoy hearing. We talk about, because if I talk about you need to repent, it means you did something wrong. It means that you have a problem. Uh, you uh, are doing something wrong. We don't like that. We don't like to be told no. But that was the message of Jesus. That was the message of John, and it must be our message as well. We must be honest about sin and judgment coming and because of the sin and judgment, we must call people to repentance, to allegiance change with the whole life. Repent because the Son of God has invaded to rescue from exilic darkness. Let's pray.
Jesus, we thank you that you have invaded, um, that you have come near, that yours kingdom is the ultimate kingdom. All nations, languages, people groups will be under your rule. But Lord, that would be bad news for us apart from your dealing with our sin. We thank you that you are the God-man, the one mediator between God and man, that we can, that you have paid for our sins, that we can repent and entrust ourselves to you. We can not only have you dealt with the, the penalty, the, pun, the punishment of sin, but you've dealt with its power in our lives, and we wait for you to deal with its presence in our lives as well. Jesus, we do ask that you would come. We ask that you would come and you would set up your kingdom. But we also ask that you would grant repentance, that we would be faithful ambassadors as you've called us to be in the spheres of life where you have placed us to call people boldly, courageously, firmly to repentance and yet to show them who you are as the gracious king who has extended that offer. Lord, even this week as we encounter people in, in the places where you put us, Lord God, I pray that you would grant us opportunities to make that call. Repent for the kingdom of heaven has drawn near. Lord, if there are any who have not repented of sin, their allegiance is still fundamentally to themselves rather than to you, I pray that you would work, Holy Spirit, in their hearts. Lord, help us to be patient as we see darkness in our world and it becomes overwhelming and crushing. Help us to look to you, Lord Jesus, and know you will come and know you will finish the job because you started it. Lord, we praise you, we honor you, we thank you. Bless this time now as we take your supper to remember you. In Christ's name, amen.